Welcome back to Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. And do we have a good one for you today? The mystery of the lost colony of Roanoke has been solved, and it turns out it was never that much of a mystery at all. The legend of the lost colony has been captivating imaginations for nearly a century. When the colonists left Roanoke Island, where did they go? What is the meaning of the mysterious word Croatoan? In the 16th century, Croatoan was the name of an island to the south, now known as Hatteras. Scholars have long considered the island as one of the colonists' possible destinations, but only recently has anyone set out to prove that. Archaeologists from the University of Bristol working with local residents through the Croatoan Archaeological Society have uncovered tantalizing clues to the fate of the colony. Hatteras native and amateur archaeologist Scott Dawson compiles what scholars know about the lost colony along with what scholars have found beneath the soil of Hatteras. Scott Dawson is a native of Hatteras Island whose family roots on the island trace back to the 1600s. He is a graduate of the University of Tennessee with a BA in psychology and minor in history and is a well-known local historian, local author, and amateur archaeologist. He is president and founder of the Croatoan Archaeological Society and has participated in a decade of archaeological excavations and research on Hatteras Island under the direction of Dr. Mark Horton. He also serves on the board of directors of the Outer Banks History Center. Scott, thanks for coming on and being with me. And we are in the middle of the coronavirus right now talking. we got about another month of quarantine to go on. And you and I were just talking about common sense. And I read your book yesterday, and it just made a lot of common sense to me, I'll be honest with you. And right out of the Thank gate, Croatoan, what does it mean? And why do so many people think of this word as a mysterious key? Well, um, thank you for, for that. I, I would say that the most common response I get when people um, have listened to me at a presentation or have read something is this makes so much sense. Why don't more people know about it? And um, what, what you're dealing with is, is um, a part of history that has been overshadowed with mythology this happens all the time like walt disney's pocahontas or blackbeard or billy the kid these are real people but their real stories are completely different from what you get from disney and what have you and the same thing is true with um the croatoan indians on hatter's island and the lost colony were made famous by a play of the same name in 1937 and once a myth gets going, it's hard to kill. There's just a lot of misinformation out there. Um, all of the primary sources are written in 16th century English, so it's very difficult um, for people to, to read, and so they just don't do it. And then you get secondary sources that are false, and they just go around in circles, and they're all quoting each other. So that's kind of um, how that happened. But if you do take the time to read the primary sources, it's very, very straightforward what happened. It's not ambiguous at all. And um, so I did that. And then to uh, investigate further, we got these archaeological digs going and were able to get physical evidence to, to prove what the historical documents were saying all along. So, yeah, it, um, it's... You, asked, you asked me what does Croatoan mean. Yeah. It, it it literally means council town or talking town like in Algonquin. That's what it means. But it is also the name of Hatteras Island mm-hmm. in North Carolina. 
and um, the people that lived there were referred to as Croatoan Indians. <laughs> I mean, it's you know that's where we start kind of going towards the you know common sense coming right at you know what happened to the quote unquote lost colony. And you know the story of the lost colony when it was told in school history books, and it's weird because I remember maybe third or fourth grade, there was actually a drawing in our history book of a befuddled, you know, you know John Governor White coming back and looking at a croato and carved into the tree, not into the palisade, but onto a tree, you know, wondering what happened to the lost colonist. Um, so it was almost like they just heard the story and just put it straight into the history book that we were reading as kids. So if it's told in the history books, if it's not told, it's just glossed over or on television specials. It always seems to start with either the settlement of the colony itself in Roanoke or the voyage over. However, and this was awesome because you really did a great deep dive into the story, you point out that it's crucial to go back to the earlier English explorations in the area and into the New World to understand what happened. And can you give us a little taste of why that is so important? That's exactly right. They usually start the the story in the middle, like Star Wars, about you know midpoint, and it's um pretty pretty much just a regurgitation of the mythologies. Um, so real quick, the the kind of myth of the lost colony is that the English went to Roanoke Island, and uh, the governor had to go home for supplies and couldn't come back for three years. And when he did, there's this mysterious word Croatoan written on the tree and and no one knows what it means, and and they vanished, and that was the only clue they left. That's garbage, of course. Um, so Croatoan's a real place that the English had been going to for years, and there's a whole history between the English and the Croatoan Indians for years. And so to say they don't know what that word means or don't know where it is is completely uh, false. And it's more of a case of abandonment because the governor did try to go down there immediately upon seeing the message. It was driven off by a storm. Yeah. It already had seven people drowned on the way over, and he had basically hitchhiked with pirates to get here. Um, he made um, several attempts to come back to resupply the colony. The first one was thwarted by the war with Spain and the Spanish Armada. The second time, they actually got attacked by the French, and John White himself was wounded three times, shot and stabbed, so they had to take him back and with the other wounded to England. And then the third try, he, he basically um, rode with pirates, and they went and raided the Caribbean for 90% of their journey and then reluctantly kind of stopped by. And when the storm hit, they were like, look, that's it. We're not taking you again, and they, they went home. No other attempt was ever made to reconnect with the colony, even though they knew that they went to Croatoan and it made perfect sense why they would go there, besides the fact that they literally carved it out in capital letters on a, a tree that made up part of a palisade. Mm-hmm. They knew they were went there because of the relationships that the English had with that tribe, and conversely, the terrible relationships the English had with the, tri- the other tribes in the area. It's kind of a no-brainer why they would go there. It was the only people that didn't want to kill them. And it's people they've been friends with for years. And the English had lived on that island before. So there's a whole history there of other voyages to the Outer Banks that are not mentioned at all, ever. Yeah. And you, you kind of need that information to understand the situation that that lost colony, which was the fourth voyage, English voyage to New World, 
the situation they were walking into. And if you understand that, it's crystal clear. I mean, it's crystal clear why they went down there and how we know that. And now we've done digs on the Crowley Indian Village, and we're finding 16th century artifacts in exactly where they said they would be. Yeah, I mean, you know, so, and the cool thing too is that you know I think you mentioned this earlier, maybe, and, and you have it, you know, in the book, and it's mentioned several times in the book. It's like they're following Governor White's orders. He tells them where to leave it, to leave the symbol, or to where to leave the mark of where they're going. And even if they're leaving, you know, because of danger, to uh, make a mark of a cross underneath the name of where they're going, if they were leaving because of because they're being driven out or because of danger, so they're obeying orders that White had left them. So, I mean, they're falling orders oh, yeah. to a T. Exactly, and they did not leave a cross, so that means they're probably just hungry. Yeah. They, um, they were told, because it, it was pretty clear they were not going to hang around Roanoke Island for very long, so the governor told them, just write down where you're going um, in, in an obvious location, which they did. They put it on the... Um, a palisade is like a circle of, of trees, and it's like a bunch of um, telephone poles going around a little village and it's got to have an entrance. So it's kind of shaped like a spiral and the right hand entrance is the one tree that you have to walk by to get inside to the settlement. And that's where they put the message. So they put it in the most obvious location they could. And then they wrote CRO on another tree where they kept the boats. So they wrote it one and a half times and, you know, white knew he had, there was nothing ambiguous in his mind about it, and he says that clearly in his writings. He talks about how he was uh, he had a certain token of, of um, or he was very joyful that at least he found a token of their safe arrival at Croatoan, the place where Manuel was born, and the people at that island, their friends, and blah, blah, blah. So he, he had no um, uh, conflict about where they went. All of that was invented in 1937. This whole idea that they're lost and no one knows is um, fiction to sell tickets. So, you know, that's what we're up against. But it's a really cool story, and it, it is kind of sad that, that no one knows the real history. So that's what I was trying to do with this book is just bring all that out. Yeah, and the cool thing about it is this, you know, you're trying to bring the true story of the history of what happened with the colonists in, but just the early English history in America is because they think Roanoke and then Jamestown is what people you know will go to. But, you know, even with the first English, you know, the first time an English person met a native, um, you know, you kind of, you know, up in that a little bit, just because of your deep diving into research, because, you know, you, you, you brought up that you can't take the measurements, you know, from the 16th century and apply that to today, which is, you know, great to read about too. Um, cause I believe it was a league oh, yeah. was off it and it could be anywhere from what was it? 20 to 60 miles. Um, it, cause it was as far as the eye could see is how they measured it. Um, from a crow's nest. Yeah. I don't blame them for yeah. missing that. That was, you know, that's okay. But, um, the, where they landed is really obvious if you're from here and you have hyper familiarity with the geography, it's pretty easy to understand. Um, the confusion is because the first time the English came to the New World. Well, the first time they came to what's now the United States, anyway. Um, they said that they landed at Wunganakoa, which was wrong. They, they asked uh, a native, you know, what, 
where are we? Like they're all going to speak English, like Star Trek or something. And he says, Wingonicoa, which means you wear gay clothes. And they just wrote down, we're in the land of Wingonicoa. They, they had it wrong. And they, they corrected this mistake, and, ne- and they never referred to it as that again. But the very first ship captain, Arthur Barlow, he actually landed, ironically, on July 4th uh, <laughs> in 1584. And he said that they came in through an inlet and took a left-hand turn, and they went three harquebus shots, which it's, that's hard to know exactly how far that is. But they went three harquebus shots into the inlet, took a left, and, and landed on what they discovered later to be an island that is 20 miles long, running from east to west, and that you could not see the mainland from the island. Well, on the Outer Banks, there's only two places where that's possible. One is Hatteras Island, and one is Ocracoke Island. But Ocracoke is later identified very clearly as Wakakon, and um, nobody lived there, like mm-hmm. not even Indians. So they landed at Croatoan. That's the first place that they landed and they're also talk about firing a gun from a hilltop and like an army of geese rising beneath them. And Ocracoke doesn't have any elevation over about three feet. Hatteras has, um, or Croatoan, same thing, has elevation um, over 50 feet on some of the hills. So there's nowhere here with any great big mountains, but um, 50 feet is enough that you can fire a gun and a bunch of, bunch of cranes will rise up from the marshes below. And they talk about um, their main goal was to rob the Spanish. That's what people got to understand. They, they didn't come over here with a bunch of kids and women and trying to make a, like a Jamestown-type settlement. That wasn't the goal. Mm-hmm. It was a military expedition. It was all men. It was all military men. Uh, they didn't bring the baker and candlestick maker and all that. It was just soldiers. And they wanted to find a good place to pirate the Spanish when the Spanish came out of the Caribbean and followed the Gulf Stream current back to Europe, it goes right by Hatteras Island. And it's the perfect place to rob them because you can actually see them in the Gulf Stream, and there's nowhere else on the East Coast you can do that. It also has a shallow bay called Pamlico Sound on the other side that you can escape to if the Spanish warships did come in because their drafts are too deep. They used Hatteras Island for piracy for centuries after that for the exact same reason. Geography is just absolutely perfect for it. We still have pirates today. They're just called realtors. <laughs> so, but, that's yeah, they landed there. So that's the first people they met. And they, um, in addition to you know wanting to rob the Spanish, if they could make any money through trade with the natives they met, they were going to do that. And they didn't, they didn't get gold. They didn't get silver. They didn't um, get as lucky as the Spanish had in the Caribbean, but they did make a profit. They made a 160% return, and it was off of deer skins, um, pearls, and then tobacco. Other things as well, but those were the three main commodities that they found, and they were able to trade little trinkets of copper and glass beads to get it. So it was a huge profit for them uh, to trade. So... You know, both sides felt like they were taking advantage of the other um, because the natives, you know, they didn't have iron. So to get, you know, just some simple, simple hatchets and saws and tools was a big deal uh, to help build their houses and canoes because they had been doing it with, with shells and fire and antlers. So it made their lives a lot easier. And for the... Uh, English side of it, you know, they get 50 deer skins was worth an entire year's pay for a sailor. 
and they could get that for like one copper pot. So both sides were really happy in the beginning. Yeah, it's almost a symbiotic, or was a symbiotic relationship really for them. Exactly. So, you know, I want to skip ahead now a little bit because, um, or, or a good bit. So like earlier we started off by saying it's almost, you know, common sense, you know, what happened and you've had so much, you know, information in this book. Um, it's just, it was a great read. It was a good way to spend my afternoon yesterday. Uh, honestly, uh, it was, a, it, it made the afternoon go by a little bit quicker during this time. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I might read through it again this afternoon again. Uh, I enjoyed it so much, but it's full of historical information. We want listeners to buy the book, read the evidence for themselves. But it makes so much sense, especially you know when you give the account of John Lawson um, as well. And I want listeners to be able to read that account for themselves. It's, I think it's really interesting when you read it and how you know racism played a part too. Um, you point out with this. Um, but I want to get to your archaeology um, because you're part of a group, um, the Croatoan Archaeological Society. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Okay, sure. Um, I would like to say one one quick thing about Lawson since you brought up. Of course, yeah. Um, we we have these we have these beautiful um, records from the 16th century from John White, Ralph Wayne, and Grenville, and Thomas Harry, and all these people that were here in the 1500s. Mm-hmm. And then we have Lawson in the 1700s who went to Hatteras Island and the people there told him straight up that their ancestors were white people who could speak out of a book. And they even said they came on Sir Walter Raleigh's ship and like everything. But we have absolutely no records whatsoever for the 1600s. So the entire 17th century was kind of a mystery. And one of the goals of the archaeology was to discover what happened during that missing century. Because the, the Hatteras tribe, Croatoan, the same thing, um, they, they didn't disappear in 1587. They were still around. And they their rec, the last records of them kind of fade out in the 1760s. Um, they just interbred with white people to the point of becoming like Elizabeth Warren or whatever. And um, <laughs> there's no... There's no record whatsoever, though, the 1600s. So when I um, contacted these archaeologists, I wanted professionals to come take a look at the Indian villages. I already knew the Lost Colony went to Hatteras. I did not think that we would actually find proof of that, though. I mean, we know the Lost Colony spent time on Roanoke Island as well, and they've done over 100 digs there, and they haven't found squat, like nothing. So I didn't... I didn't know we'd actually find anything related to that, but I knew that we could go to Indian villages and learn about them. In, in doing that, we did end up finding stuff from the Lost Colony, but the goal of the Croatoan Archaeological Society was to learn about the Croatoan, and still is. Mm-hmm. That is what we set out to do, and I was one of the founding members and the president and got it going to learn and preserve their history. That was the goal. When the archaeologists came down, I already knew where a lot of things were because I um, used to do construction, and you see it when people are building houses. You see all the artifacts coming up out of the ground, and it's kind of sad, you know, because once you build a house on something, you completely ruin the archaeology. The uh, high school did that when they uh, extended the high school. 
So I knew there was a lot of uh, key places that we could go you know, near where something was built that had not been disturbed yet and find some Indian artifacts. And on the test pit phase, before we had a real team together and before we started opening up big trenches, we, uh, we started finding hundreds of thousands of artifacts right away, just right off the bat in these locations. And um, we were able to shed a lot of light on what happened in that missing century and not only answer where the colony went, but what happened after that. And the evidence that you see, and it's cool, I mean, because you can actually see it. Mm-hmm. It's like the closest thing to time travel you can do. They assimilated. You can see where, you know, little stars of glass, something natives did not have, were chipped into arrowheads. You can see where, uh, like, an earring became a fishhook. You can see where when guns broke down and the barrels broke off, that they then used it for other tools. It's complete assimilation. There's mixed architecture. You can see where the longhouses were that they were living in, and then right next to it there's a there's a uh, – a smithy or a shop where they're making their own lead shot, they're casting their own copper in the Indian village, like at the same depth, same level. So these houses are side by side. You can see right where they moved in, and the whole story starts to unfold. And you can actually put it into a computer model after we draw the site, and you could reconstruct exactly where the longhouses were, where the English houses were, where the fire pits were, where the big piles of shells were when they had, you know, feast of oysters and deer and all that. And, um, you know, I, I felt like that was worth doing because these people are no longer here to defend themselves. And they've been kind of marginalized in history when they played this major role in American history and they get no credit for it. So I felt like a, almost a duty to bring that to the surface, like literally bring it to the surface. And then, um, you know, straighten the record out. Yeah, you know, Scott, I feel like what you're doing isn't, because I hate saying rewriting history. I like to say it's correcting history. And you're playing yeah, a major role. down yeah. already. Yeah, and you're it's, just correcting the knowledge of it. Plain English. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when you start reading the primary sources, the letters aren't even the same. So a U is a V, and, and a V is a U. So it'll say something like, the sausages were up early this morning instead of savages mm-hmm. and and um, S's look like F's, and it, it takes a long time just to read one paragraph. So that's part of why this history has been hidden for so long, is nobody does it. They look at where one guy transcribed it in the 50s and just go with that or whatever. And, and you really have to sit down and read the primary sources yourself. That's the first thing that any historian is taught when they go to college. You've got to go to the primary sources. And even those aren't perfect, but that's the best thing that you have to go on. You can investigate it further with archaeology. We've done that as well. And, you know, we're just trying to dig at the truth through the libraries and through the ground. You know, and, and um, something else, Scott, that's really cool about what you're doing, though, is by going back and telling the colonists' story, you're telling, you're also being able to tell the story of this whole island for even from the prehistoric times too, with some of the artifacts you're finding that might not have happened otherwise. Oh yeah. Yeah. The lost colony aside, there's some really awesome stuff that we found that way older than that. We're getting Cumberland points from 11,000 BC. I mean, you really, that's correct. You're getting the entire history of the island. And a lot of that 
there's no way to know about it other than archaeology because there was nothing written down that long ago. We don't even know what language they spoke. But we know people were there finding their stuff. And, um, yeah, there's um, several late woodland Indian villages on the island, which is, you know, recent as far as, as natives go on the island. That's your lost colony stuff and a little bit after. There's also some mid-woodland sites on the island, which is, you know, about the year 500. And it's just neat seeing how they lived and how they made um, – they, they were using nets with oyster weights because they didn't have lead. So they had these giant oysters that they were using. You can see where they notched the holes in them and use them to, to trap um, fish in these uh, weir nets. And um, they even made a, a big hill out of nothing but shellfish. I mean, it's a huge hill. Like today, you would think it was a regular hill. It's all covered with grass and dirt and trees. But you get into it, and it's 180 feet deep of shells, and that's ridiculous. Yeah, wow. And on top of it, all of the shells were burned, which means they were using it like a like a primitive lighthouse. So everybody's out in the sound getting fish and canoes or whatever, and they light a fire on top of this big pile of shells. It's like a beacon, so you can see it and get back at night. Or who knows? You know, that's just one theory. That's the fun part is – when you when you go beyond written record, there's really no way to know exactly anything. So you're just kind of finding pottery and putting things together. And every time you answer a question, six more emerge. And that's okay. You know, it's okay to say you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And more people should learn that lesson too. Uh, it's a great lesson to learn from archaeology and history. All right, Scott. Well, we've been going at it for 30 minutes now, and I uh, wanted to say thanks for being on, and uh, thanks for writing the book. It was a really great read. Thanks, and I hope people enjoy it. If they do read it, it's laid out in a way that people can understand, and they'll get the real history of the uh, lost colony and the Colotone Indians, even a little bit of the Spanish-Anglo War. Thanks to you, the audience, for listening. Remember, you can also see Scott on specials on the National Geographic Channel and the History Channel. And you can find Scott's book beginning June 15th at ArcadiaPublishing.com or at your local bookstore. But while you're at ArcadiaPublishing.com, enter in your zip code to the search bar to see what books Arcadia Publishing and the History Press has on your town. If you have an idea for a book and you want to tell your local story, reach out to Arcadia by visiting ArcadiaPublishing.com, scroll on down to the bottom of the page, and click the Make Me an Author link. It's the first step in writing your own history book and telling the history of your town, state, or region. If you have questions for me or episode suggestions, shoot me an email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. As always, I want to thank my pals Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. Remember, you can visit them on Facebook at Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project. I'll talk to you soon.